Today, the first message of, uh, of our five-message series is the basis of our beliefs. When I first started this, uh, this series, put, when I was putting this together, I was interim pastor at Fairfax Circle Baptist Church at Washington, D.C., right outside the Beltway. And uh, a young lady who was a professional actress was a member of that church, and, and I said I was going to start this, uh, doing this, and she came to me and she said, well, what do we believe? Uh, she was raised in Texas, and, uh, and she said, I, I don't know what we believe. I know we don't believe in dancing. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, you know, I hadn't even thought about putting that in the message. Maybe I will put, put that in the message. Uh, I, don't, I don't even touch on dancing, quite honestly. The, the, the key thing that Christians must face is what is the basis of my beliefs? Where do I get the background or the solution to the dilemma? What is the authority for which I'm going to look for my, or to which I'm going to look for my choices, for my lifestyle? And for my eternal hope, where do I go? Now, there are three possible bases for Christian authority. The first one is ecclesiastical fiat. You're going to get some fun terms here during the time that we spend together on, on these things. Ecclesiastical fiat. That does not mean the preacher's car that, never mind. <laughs> Ecclesiastical fiat means that the church dictates what you are supposed to believe. Someone from the church has final authority, regardless of what I understand the Bible to believe. From this comes the idea that church tradition is as important as the scripture. When I was in Saudi Arabia uh, back during Desert Storm, we, our chaplain had gotten hurt and was, he didn't get hurt shot or anything, he got hurt playing volleyball. And, <laughs> and, uh, and he, got met, he got sent back to the United States. And so for the last three or four weeks that we were in Saudi Arabia, I took on as a collateral duty conducting uh, worship services for Protestants in, up in the northern part of, of Saudi Arabia near Al Jabal and on up further north. And the, the Catholic chaplain and I would travel to these outlying places together in, in his vehicle and uh, carried on some interesting conversations. But one day I said to him, I said, uh, I called him Padre Bill. I said, Padre Bill, where do you guys get this thing about praying to Mary? It's not in the Bible. Where do, you, where do you all get that? And he said, oh, it's church tradition. And I said, yeah, but it's not in the Bible. He said, for the Catholic church, tradition as, is as important as the scripture. So that's, that's where that comes from. Uh, and so now from time to time throughout this five-week series, I will compare what we believe to what other 
denominations believe because that's, that's important to do. So you can see, you'll, you'll see the difference. And I get that straight from a, a, a priest's mouth, that tradition is as important as the scripture. So uh, that's, that's called ecclesiastical fiat, that the church tells you what to believe. From this comes the idea that church tradition, uh, that was the basis of Martin Luther's starting the Reformation. He saw in 1 Peter 2 verse 5 that we are a holy priesthood. There was, uh, he, he was looking at the priests who people went to to have them talk to God for them. A priest is somebody who goes directly to God. And Martin Luther said, wait a minute. The scripture says that we as individual Christians are priests. And so he said, I don't really need to go to some other priest in order to go to God. I should be able to go to God myself, the priesthood of the believer. And so he started the Reformation and, and everything that came after that. Uh, there were two verses there. Verse uh, five, uh, 5 says, we are a holy priesthood. And verse 9 says, we are a royal priesthood, the priesthood of the believer. And so we... Folks, believe in the priesthood of the believer. We get to go directly to God. We don't have to go through somebody else. Isn't that great? We can go talk to God anytime we want to, and he's ready to listen to us. Life is good when you can talk directly to God, the priesthood of the believer. And so here comes another really good word. There's no blank on your, on your outline for you to write this down so you can put it in the, in the margin Sacerdotalism. Are you ready for that? S A C E R D O T A L ism. Sacerdotalism. We don't believe in sacerdotalism. Sacerdotalism means one person's got more oomph than another person, one person has more spiritual power than another person. We don't believe that. Sacerdotalism says that by virtue of the position I hold in the church, I have more power. And so the, the Catholic Church by, says that a priest, by virtue of the, or a cardinal, or a bishop, or the Pope himself, has more power by virtue of the position that they hold. In the Mormon organization, they say that Joseph Smith to start with, who created the, the organization, and then those in the church hierarchy have the authority to tell you what to believe. Again, ecclesiastical fiat, sacerdotalism, what, a lot of fancy words here that you can wow your family and friends with. Uh, Mary Baker Eddy came up with the, with the stuff that uh, Christian science holds, and she came out with, with the, the writings that uh, say, hey, I have more authority because I have a special revelation from God. Sacerdotalism. Uh, all claim to be or have been divinely inspired beyond what you and I are. But the truth is, based on the Bible, based on God's holy word, 
you and I, when we received the Holy Spirit into our lives, we became priests. We can go directly to God. We don't have to have somebody else go to God for us. That's why when I lead these pastoral prayers, fairly often I will say, folks, my prayer doesn't carry any more weight than yours does. I just, I'm just joining you in praying about the things that are of concern to you. We're just joining together as a body of believers praying. It's just, it's just prayer of a community of believers. So we believe the inspired scriptures were completed in the first century, and each of us who have been saved has the Holy Spirit available to us equally to provide understanding. When we got saved, the Holy Spirit, all of the Holy Spirit that there was available to a person, when we got saved, that Holy Spirit came to live in us. Now, next week, we're going to talk about the Trinity, and I'll be talking more about the Holy Spirit then. But all of the Holy Spirit that's available came to dwell in us and to provide us understanding of the Scripture. We are priests. We go directly to God. So, ecclesiastical fiat is the first of the three bases for Christian authority. The second of the Christian of the of the three bases is rationalism or reason. That means I think I am my own final authority. It seems to me like all evidence that I see points to this, that, or the other. My intuition tells me that I should believe this, that, or the other. This way just feels right to me. So what that is, person is saying is it puts me above God's inspired word. It puts me, I am my own final authority. By my rationalizing, I look at that place in 2 Kings chapter 6 where the axe head floated some of you will know what I'm talking about. There's that, an axe head actually floated in the water. And you may say, well, you know, I think that's just a, that's just a form of statement. Actually, axe heads don't float in the water. And so you may say, so I don't, I'm not going to believe that part of the Bible because that's not rational. And you teach your children that they don't need to believe that part of the Bible that God doesn't do supernatural things like that in certain instances. You teach your children that, and then it's not a very far stretch for those children to say, well, virgins don't give birth, or dead people don't come back to life. And it destroys our whole basis of our faith about who Jesus Christ is. If you start questioning and playing down the supernatural aspect of God in the Bible, then you're teaching those and yourself, if you allow that to happen, those who, over whom you have influence to say, oh, the Bible is really not that important. It's more about what you think. It's more about your reason. And therefore, there'll be no Christian faith at all. Now, this does not mean we're not to think about what we read in the Bible. 
Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Sure, you're supposed to reason. You're supposed to think about what you read. Uh, what you read. In the creation story, one of the most obvious examples in our day and time, the evening and the morning were the first day. Does that mean 24 hours? Or does that mean period of time? Good Christians can disagree on that. What we can agree on and what we must agree on is that God did it. God is the one that did it according to the scripture and he did it in his way. In using your God-given ability to reason, just be careful that it is Bible-based, not some flight of fancy that you come up with based on somebody's theory, the Da Vinci Code. Back when I was in college, somebody wrote a book called Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Y'all remember that? And kind of a religion started popping up based on Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Good night. Why would anybody do that? We've got the Bible. That was rationalism or reason. So ecclesiastical fiat, rationalism, reason. The third is divine revelation. God tells us through his word, the Bible as shown to us by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We get our divine revelation from Almighty God through His Word. This is where it comes from right here. We believe the Bible is without error in its original Translation, in its original manuscripts, rather. We hold to the doctrine of, here's another one, the doctrine of sola scriptura. We hold to the doctrine of sola scriptura, meaning the scripture alone is our ultimate authority. The scripture alone. Now, I recommend this approach. I don't think you've got a space for it on your, in your outline there. But I, I recommend this is the approach you take. What does it say? What does it mean? And how does it apply? When you're reading the scripture, when you're doing your own study, look at what does it say? What does the scripture say? You're going to read it and you're going to think about it while you're reading it. You're going to say, okay, what does it say? Read it over two or three times, the passage you're looking at it. What does it say? What does it mean? Now that is where you get the Bible dictionary and the maps and the commentaries that tell you what was going on at that place and time, at the time that it was written. What does it say? What does it mean? And now how does it apply? Application is huge. The Bible is not just written for us to understand interesting stuff about a long time ago. It is written for us to apply it to our lives today. That the Holy Spirit will help us understand how to apply it. That 
part of how does it apply? What, how, what does it mean? Prayer goes there, but it really goes into the how does it apply? Oh, God, I've just read this. I see what you mean there. How do I need to apply this to my life right now? Your word Show me what I need to do to make it a part of my life now and in the future. God, have I got stuff going on in my life right now that needs what you're showing me in your scripture? Or is it something I need to hide in my heart for the future? What does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply? Now let's spend the rest of our time talking about this wonderful book, the Bible. God's holy word. It was written over a period of about 1,600 years. It was written by about 40 inspired writers. Now, we don't know exactly because, uh, for example, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. A lot of people think Paul the apostle wrote the book of Hebrews because of the writing style. But Paul started a lot of his letters by saying, Paul the apostle uh, of Jesus Christ writing to the church at Ephesus or, or wherever he was writing to. Doesn't start Hebrews like that. So we don't know. Who, but, it was, but it's divinely inspired. And so we say about 40 people wrote. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek with some Aramaic. Evidence that the Bible is true. We can accept, if we're going to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and the Holy Spirit lives in us, we can accept that the Bible is true. But if you like to look at evidence that the Bible is true, there are some interesting things there. And you can go dig it out and look at it for yourself, but a couple of them. For one thing, there are Old Testament prophecies. Jesus was prophesied to be born in where? Bethlehem, of course. Where was he born? Born in Bethlehem. It was prophesied that Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. What, what did Judas get? 30 pieces of silver. There are some prophecies that we see from the Old Testament that we see also came through. Here's an interesting little thing. You remember the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found? Uh, a lot, before the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, a lot of people used to say that the picture of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 was too close to what happened to Jesus. The Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus. And that that was a picture too close to what actually happened to Jesus for it to have actually been written before Jesus. That that must have been written after Jesus and then plugged in so that people could look at the Bible and say, okay, you know, that, and, and it made it look like it was written before Jesus. And they, you know, but it wasn't real. In 1947, a young fellow was throwing rocks in a cave down in Qumran and he heard something break and he went in and he found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Y'all know all about that. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls were pulled out and one of the scrolls had the entire book of Isaiah in it 
And they found when they dated it that it had been written 150 years before Jesus. 150 years before Jesus, they had that description. And it described uh, the suffering servant of what Jesus went through for us. Isn't that neat? I think that's pretty good. And then... When I was doing the Marine Corps Museum as, as project manager, I went to a lot of museum stuff. And one of the conferences that I went to, a guy was there with scraps of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so I went over and talked to him. And I told him that I was using this illustration in this message. And I said, am I lying? And he said, nope, you're telling exactly the truth. That that's, that piece about Jesus Christ was part of the overall Isaiah thing we have, and it dates to 150 years before Jesus. So there it is. If you want some more proof, that's pretty good proof. The New Testament. It was prophesied in the New Testament that the temple would be torn down and not one stone would be left on another. Happened in 70 A.D., Titus came through and destroyed the temple. It was prophesied in the New Testament that the children of Israel would come back to their home. Happened in 1948. That's just a few examples. It's just fun to look and see how God just keeps on working and how true his word is. This is a true, true Bible. The central person of the Bible is Jesus Christ, all the way back to the early Old Testament. Jesus Christ is reflected. God said, let us create man in our own image. In Genesis 3, 15, he talks about the snake's head being bruised and the one who bruises its heel being bruised, the snake's head being crushed, and the one who bruised its heel being, being bruised. That's talking about Jesus being bruised, but coming back to life. But he would defeat Satan utterly, I believe. So, the central theme of the Bible is redemption. How to get us from where we are to being where God is for all eternity. Being redeemed, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. We've redeemed, we're pulled back from where we are to being with God, just like the prodigal son. We're brought back to be with the Father. So how can the Bible best be used? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We'll look at each one of those for just a moment. God's Word is profitable for teaching. What does it teach us? What does God's Word teach us? Well, it teaches us things of Christ. I mean, that's what it's here for, right? To tell us about Jesus. Jesus is the principle, the central person of the Bible. It teaches us about Christ. It teaches us who he is and the story of his life. Two weeks from today, I'll be focusing entirely on why Jesus came. What was Jesus' purpose in coming? And we'll take a look at that. 
the things of Christ, who he was, who he is, and the story of his life. It also teaches us about the church that Jesus established. What did the New Testament church believe? What did it teach? What did it practice? How did the church get so changed? And what is our responsibility now to hold the church as close to the New Testament church as we can? Isn't that what we're supposed to be about? Don't we need to look at the church that Jesus Christ established and hold ourselves as close to that as we possibly can? What did it practice? What was its mission? The Great Commission, right? We'll be looking at that later on too. And then teaching about the Christian life. What is its source? What is its nature? What is our Christian life's purpose? What are we supposed to be about? If we're going to claim the name of Jesus, if we're going to say we are a Christian, Christian, little Christ is what that really means. If we're going to claim to be a little Christ, what kind of a lifestyle should we have? And I've talked about that a good bit, and you ain't heard it all yet. What kind of a lifestyle should we have? Now, there are some things that the Bible does not teach. I say this lovingly to my friends of other denominations. Just like I said to my friend Padre Bill, the Bible does not teach praying to Mary. Mary was a good woman. The Bible tells us that she really was. But she's not the fourth person of the Trinity. We don't pray to Mary. Mary, the praying to her is found nowhere in the Bible. Nor is her immaculate conception. That's church tradition in that particular church that she was immaculately conceived. But that's not in the Bible. So here's our, the source of our authority right here. There is no sprinkling or infant baptism in the Bible. They didn't start baptizing babies until about the 2nd or 3rd century A.D. And they didn't sprinkle. The word baptism, excuse me, the word baptism comes from the word baptizo, which means immerse. So we immerse. Doesn't mean you're going to hell if you weren't immersed. It just means that that's what the first church did, and so we think that's the right thing to do. So that's what we're going to do. Baptizo. We are not immune, however. Nowhere does the Bible say somebody has to walk an aisle in order to be saved. You know, we like traditions, but it does say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And that's what the Bible says. And that's where we get it. So let's learn to practice the teachings of God's Word. So His Word is profitable for teaching. God's Word is profitable for rebuking. Always in love. God's Word rebukes sin and it disciplines the sinner, but always out of love. God loves us. So very much. 
If humbly received, the rebuking of God's word brings healing for the cancer caused by sin. The sin in our lives is like a cancer in our heart that just wants to eat us up, that wants to destroy our witness, that wants to destroy it. If you've never been saved, it wants to destroy your uh, very soul and send you to a devil's hell forever. That's what the sin in your life wants to do. But God wants to bring healing for the cancer caused by sin. And God, when he rebukes, he does it out of love, just like surgery wounds in order to heal. All the surgery may hurt. God disciplines those whom he loves. He may make you kiss concrete, as we say. He may bring you so low, and if you listen to him, God, why am I here? He said, because I want you back here. Oh, God, show me the way back. I hate this place where I am, and I realize that I've done it to myself. Show me, God. Bring me back. Redeem me. If humbly received, the rebuking of God's word brings healing for the cancer caused by sin. It wounds only to heal, just as surgery hurts to cure. So God's word is profitable for rebuking. God's word is profitable for correcting. Amos 7, 7 and 8. This is what he showed me, it says. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. Those of you that work in construction or have done some, Know what a plumb line is. It's a cord that has a metal weight on the bottom of it. And if you're going to build a wall, you can hold that cord up, and the weight on the bottom makes it perfectly straight. And if, you, if you're smart, you build the wall so it's parallel to that string that is, that is perfectly straight. It's so that you know correctness. You know straight. And so, and the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I'm setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. That plumb line was the word of God, which gives the truth, the truth, straight up and down, the truth, so we can be corrected from crooked to straight. This is our plumb line. That's it. Right there. There's your plumb line. Straight up and down. All right? That's what God has given us. He's given us his plumb line so we'll know the truth. And then God's word is profitable for training in righteousness. I think I wrote this one out for you in your booklet. For correcting mistakes, curbing passions, learning about integrity, virtue, purity of life, the correct way to think, feel, and act. The Bible is a practical guide for anyone who wants to live an upright, honest life. In there you got the Ten Commandments. You have the Psalms, the Proverbs, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, 
the example of Christ himself. There's just so much. That's just a few of the things that are in this wonderful plumb line that has all the truth in it, this wonderful truth-filled Bible, the Word of God. It's all there. So how's the best way to hold fast to the God's Word? Well, the way to hold God's Word, first of all, I'm going to use these five fingers as an illustration. First of all, with your index finger, is hear the Word of God. Hear it. That's what y'all are doing this morning. Bless your hearts. I'm so glad you're here. And for those that are participating by online services, I'm glad you're doing that as well. Number one, index finger, hear the Word of God. Then the middle finger, read the Word of God. Hear it, read it. Now remember the three-step process we talked about a while ago? Uh, What does it say? That's reading. What does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply? Here, read. Ring finger is study. What does it mean? How does it apply? Study. So here, read, study. The little finger is memorize. Memorize the Word of God. I'll tell you what. There's nothing like having a verse of Scripture memorized that you can pull up whenever you need it. That just comes to mind. I was sitting in for just a couple of minutes on one of the Sunday school classes this morning. And they were talking about light. That, about the importance of being the light. And to have a verse of scripture like, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify you. No. And glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what it says. You've memorized that. You know it. Or you memorize another verse or another that in a situation, it just, it just pops out there because you memorized it. Or be ye kind one to another. I remember a little girl came running into her mother. I saw it one time. I can't even remember when it was, but she came running into her mother, and, and she's telling on her little brother. And she said, Mommy, Johnny's not being ye kind. <laughs> that, they started, out, started the kids out young memorizing those scriptures. Of course, you use it for your own purposes like that, don't you? And then the thumb. The thumb is the one... What does it say? What does it mean? How does it apply? The thumb is meditate. Meditate on the Word of God. If you do all five of those steps, you've got a firm grip on the Word of God. Make it such a part of your life that you spend that time. Maybe you've got a favorite chair that you can go sit down in and you spend that hour with God every day. Uh, Maybe first thing in the morning, I personally do mine in the evening. I I like the nighttime when things have wound down for the day. And I'm I'm an evening kind of guy with that. My wife, Gloria, she's a morning person. So who can tell? Uh, But I I like that. But find the time. To grasp that word of God with both, with, with, with all five fingers and spend that time. Oh, the word of God is, do you know what we've got here? The word of God? This is not something to just be put on a shelf and gather dust. This is the real deal. This is the word of Almighty God.
So whose standards inspire us to live godly lives? The only answer is God's standards. Where do we find God's standards? In God's Word. A young lady read quickly through a book and set it aside. It was a pretty good book. Soon it was nearly forgotten, but sometime later she met the author. They fell in love with each other and eventually got married. And she happened to find that book again. And she opened that book and read it. And wow, she, all the subtleties in that book and the humor and the hidden messages she saw. Why? Because she knew and loved the author. Do you know and love the author of this book? So you see all of those messages, all of the strength, all of the power, all of the opportunities that we have in here to have a wonderful personal relationship with him. And we can just talk to him about anything at any time. It's available to us. Knowing Christ personally brings the Bible alive. And there it is right there. Thank you, Jesus. Where do you stand today? Is God's Word your daily guide? I like to read the open windows, and I have some other devotional books that I read from time to time, and one that I use every day. But the Bible is the basis of all of it. It's good to get other people's thoughts, but the Bible, this is the Word of God. The Word of God. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Where do you stand with God today? Do you know him personally? Do you have a relationship with him so that when you read his word or when you hear his word, it just thrills you because you know he's speaking to you? Do you have that relationship? Let me encourage you right now to talk to him. To say, Jesus... Oh, I thank you so much for your word. Please make it valuable to my life. Help me to recognize it for what it is. Help me to spend time in your word. Oh, dear God. Father, I pray for the folks in this room, the folks that are participating in our worship time today through the Internet. Father, I pray that you will touch each of our lives and help us to be faithful and available and teachable so that you will indeed be master and you will be honored and we will recognize you as our Savior and our Lord and let the Holy Spirit have complete control and sway in our lives. Father, if there are people in this room that have never prayed to receive you as their Savior, they've never invited you in, 
I pray that you will give them a sense of need to accept you right now, to pray and ask you to come into their lives. Folks, if you've never prayed to receive Christ, would you do that right now? Then this Bible, this wonderful Word of God takes on all new meaning. Would you pray to receive Christ? Just recognize that you've sinned. The Bible says we all have. Recognize that the penalty for sin is death. That's talking about eternity in hell, separated from God, but in a place the Bible calls hell, eternity. But that's why Jesus died. He died to pay the penalty for your sins so you wouldn't have to. Jesus had no sins of his own to to pay for. I can't die for your sins. I've got my own. But Jesus is the only person, being God in the form of a man, who never sinned. So he could die to pay for your sins. What you do is you thank him for doing that and admit that you are a sinner and ask him to come into your life and to be your Lord. Believe on him. Give your life to him. Oh, that's what he wants so much. Would you pray to receive him right now? Dear Jesus, I pray right now that if there are those that have never prayed to receive you, that they will do that at this moment. Would you all please stand? And during the next very few minutes, if you need to make a commitment to Christ, maybe you need to come up here and just kneel down at these steps and pray for the next couple of minutes. Just come up and pray, committing your life once again to the Christ of the Bible. Maybe you need to commit your life to Christ and talk to one of these counselors that will be up here about the next step you need to take. Whatever it is, would you give your life to Christ right now? Would you just make that commitment to Him? We have just the time here available. This is the moment. This is the time to commit yourself to Him. female counselors available to talk to you about next steps. Just commit your life to him right now. 
Thank you for your kind attention. If you have made a commitment to Christ or you want someone from the church to get in touch with you this week and you chose not to come up to the front, you find in your bulletin a little purple slip, a tear out like this. You can write down your information on it and put it on one of the little receptacles next to one of the doors on your way out. We encourage you to do that so that the folks from the church can follow up and talk to you about whatever your decision may be and whatever kind of contacts you need. Next week, we'll be talking about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Father, I pray now that you will be with us as we leave this place. May our lives be changed for the good as we recognize the power of the Bible. In Jesus' precious name, amen. God bless you.